Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to your weekly American Prestige, where we will love bomb you with abandon. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with Derek Davison. Derek, how's your week going, man? Uh, it's going okay. I don't know what love bombing is. You tried to just explain it to me just now, but I still don't know, and I don't want to know. Let's just Derek is actually West End Caleb. He's been catfishing um, all of New York City from his compound West in End northern Caleb Virginia, me and then he, he ghosted me. So sorry. Classic, classic move. Classic move. But but there's a lot going on in the world this week, Derek. So let's move from the more important news of West End Caleb to what's actually been going on in international affairs. And there's some pretty serious news. I love our transitions on the show. There's some pretty That's serious great, news. <laughs> great transition. Good segue from Thank you. I've, I've been online do- dating to... I've been, I've been doing this a while. Um, uh, in Burkina Faso, and uh, there's actually been a coup. So uh, for people who might not know, why don't you explain what's been going on? So Sunday, there were reports of gunfire uh, at several uh, military bases across Burkina Faso, not the kind of thing that uh, you want to hear if you're a fan of civilian government or of that particular civilian government. The government throughout the day on Sunday uh, kept assuring everybody there was no coup, there was some you know, mutinying uh, taking place on some of these bases, but just some light they were still mutinies. in control. Yeah, it's just some light mutinies, no big deal. They were still in control. Uh, but by Sunday evening, there were reports of gunfire in the capital, Ouagadougou. Uh, and by Monday, it was clear the, that uh, the government had been overthrown. Soldiers seized power on Monday by attacking the president's motorcade. The troops blame President Roque-Marc Caboret and his civilian government for military defeats and increasing insecurity. A new junta that is apparently calling itself the Patriotic Movement for Safeguarding and Restoration uh, and is commanded by a lieutenant colonel in the Burkina Bay uh, Army, uh, Paul-Henri Damiba, I hope I'm getting at least in the ballpark there, uh, is now the de facto head of state uh, of Burkina Faso. President Roch Caboret uh, has been ousted. His whereabouts are not Known as far as I, as far as I'm aware, it's still not clear uh, where he is. But there's no indication that he's been harmed in any way. He's just uh, stepped aside and uh, allowed the military to take over. Um, so my understanding is that uh, Paul Henri uh, sent Doago Damiba. Again, apologies for the um, probable mispronunciation. Was U.S. trained? Is that correct? Yes, I believe that's correct. Um, this is often been the case in uh, over the last couple of decades at least, but but going back even further than that, um, in cases of kind of developing world coups, there are often connections between the officers generally at the colonel level, and this is the third colonel uh, coup we've seen in West Africa in, in a fairly short period of time. Um, we, often they will have received some kind of U.S. training um, lately. You know, obviously over the last 20 years or so, it's been counterterrorism. Uh, before that, it would have been, you know, how to spot a red or something like that. <laughs> right. Um, Criminal, but, criminology. But, you know, the, the, the upshot is the same. The U.S. trains these guys, gives them skills and uh, sends them back home where they wind up uh, 
you know, in some cases getting frustrated, in some cases just kind of uh, wanting to grab power. Uh, but but either way, they wind up uh, taking over the country. And it sounds like um, this is a typical sort of like upper mid military coup. It does seem like historically a lot of these coups um, are undertaken by sort of that level of military officer, um, someone who's below the generals but above the enlisted uh, men and who, who who takes over the country. So what does this suggest for the country, for Burkina Faso? Does it suggest anything about West Africa or is this just – um, you know, a completely localized phenomenon. Well, I mean, yeah, the thing about colonels is that they're p- uh, powerful enough, authoritative enough to amass support for a coup, and they're outside of the political establishment, unlike the generals, who tend to be inside the political establishment. There are still general-led coups uh, yes, here yes, and there, yes, yes, but of course. Uh, the colonel level is, is really, uh, seems to be the critical uh, level for this kind of thing. This particular coup uh, seems to have been born out of uh, frustration over the Kabore government's ineffectiveness in terms of combating jihadist violence. Burkina Faso has had a very serious and escalating problem uh, with both al-Qaeda and uh, Islamic State-affiliated groups, um, both of which who have um, kind of moved into Burkina Faso from elsewhere, from Mali, for example, as the the militancy in that country has gotten out of control. They sort of spilled into northern Burkina Faso. Niger has a a very serious problem with uh, Islamic State militants that you know, has contributed to to sort of come over the border into Burkina Faso. Uh, so the frustration uh, seems to have been that the Kabore government wasn't devoting enough resources, wasn't equipping the military um, to deal with this problem. Um, and so they moved in, they overthrew him so far, at least. Uh, it sounds like they have uh, popular support uh, because you know, the people were obviously frustrated with this, uh, uh, the mounting violence as well, uh, and blamed it on Kabore. Uh, so they seem to have a fair amount of popular support internally. Externally, um, the, <laughs> this is, uh, as I said, it's the third coup like this or similar to this uh, to take place in West Africa over the last couple of years. Uh, Guinea and Mali are uh, also currently under uh, ruling military governments. The Economic Community of West African States uh, has called an emergency summit, I think, to take place tomorrow. They will presumably respond to this coup in the way that they have the other two in Guinea and Mali uh, by demanding a quick transition to civilian government uh, or back to civilian governance uh, when the junta kind of drags its feet and says, you know, we'd like a a nice, lengthy, (laughs) luxurious transition. Uh, ECOWAS will probably... Uh, impose sanctions as it's done in the other two cases. Um, the rest of the the world, the international community, France being the big player in in this region, uh, but the United States as well, the African Union, the European Union, etc., will probably follow ECOWAS's lead. Uh, this hasn't worked in either of the other two cases, but there's not a lot of tools in the bag, I guess, uh, for ECOWAS to try to deal with something like this. And, and ECOWAS exists. Uh, in part to entrench and defend uh, the existing governments of its member states. So when anything like this happens, they're sort of bound to oppose it. They really don't have, uh, you know, much that they can do apart from sanctions, which clearly uh, don't work and get less effective the the more 
uh, countries this happens in, the more times you sanction them, you create a cadre of uh, of countries that have nothing to lose. And so they start working together with one another. Guinea and Mali have already started to do this, establishing stronger commercial ties and so forth to, to sort of uh, ameliorate the effects of the sanctions. So, um, you know, probably uh, Burkina Faso is in for a, a fairly lengthy period of military rule, but uh, we'll see. Uh, so we'll keep you all updated there. Um, so why don't we go over to Honduras and what's been going on with the recently inaugurated Xiomara Castro? And in particular, what problems has she been uh, having in Congress? So Derek, for people might, who might not be aware, who is Castro? Uh, why is she important? And what's her general approach uh, to the world? Well, Castro just wants, she's actually, I think, being inaugurated today. Uh, so she is so yesterday uh, for all the listeners. Yeah, that's true. Yesterday for the listeners. So she is the brand new, as you're listening to this president, uh, of Honduras. She's the wife of Manuel Zelaya, who was president of Honduras and was, uh, as we all remember, forced out in a coup in 2009 that was subsequently, uh, given credence by the Obama administration. Hillary Clinton took some, uh, I think legitimate criticism for that. And she is. She represents a return, uh, resurgence of uh, the Honduran left. Uh, part of something you know we've talked about uh, previously on this show. The sort of signs of a. I don't. I don't want to call it the pink tide again or the resurging pink tide, but at least a, a return of some uh, leftist politics to Latin America. She won a landslide election victory, riding on a wave of anger by people fed up with the status quo. She she comes into office um, in a bit of a bind, actually. Um, and this happened, this started last week as the new Honduran Congress sat in its uh, first session. Castro's Libre Party is the largest uh, in the Congress, but it does not have a majority. So to get her legislative agenda uh, you know, kind of advanced, uh, Castro had to make some deals. Uh, one of the deals that she made was with her incoming vice president, Salvador Nasralla. Uh, she allowed him or she, you know, she sort of, uh, negotiated that, you know, in, in return for his party's support, his, uh, party's called the Honduras Salvation Party, uh, that, that he would be allowed to name the speaker for the incoming session of Congress. Well, on Friday, uh, a cadre of uh, members of Castro's party revolted against that deal. Uh, they were backed by opposition parties who basically just want to undermine uh, Castro's presidency. Uh, and so the Congress is in a little bit of flux here in this deal that she made uh, to try and uh, ensure that her legislative agenda can can get somewhere. Uh, maybe up in the air. Last I heard, she was kind of offering the rebels in her party a, a, a compromise in hopes that they would come in and, and support uh, Nasrallah's candidate. But I don't, I don't know where things stand at this point. So does this indicate anything about the general politics of Honduras or Central America more broadly, or or not really? Because this seems fairly bespoke to me. But but it it is like if she's not able to to f- advance her agenda. Um, and we, you know, there's, there's other, uh, issues around her inauguration that we can talk about, but it's indicative to me of, of something that we're, we've, we're seeing, I think, in other cases of, uh, leftist leaders being elected, um, where they are either by circumstance, by, you know, legislative circumstance, or because they're, um, 
you know, looking to avoid problems with the United States, I think, uh, are sort of self-moderating. They're kind of moving uh, themselves to the center, uh, or at least uh, signaling moves to the center. Um, and so, you know, I think it, it does kind of fit in a general pattern, although the specific circumstances in, say, Chile or, or Brazil or, or, you know, in other places uh, are different from place to place. There is sort of this overall kind of uh, moderating force uh, pushing back against these folks. And Castro has done this to some extent uh, herself. The, the vice president of Taiwan is attending her uh, inauguration. That's an interesting story in itself because... Uh, she's hinted at cutting ties with Taiwan and opening diplomatic relations with uh, Beijing instead, but she's sort of backed away from that a little bit because of, uh, I think, concern about the United States or maybe under a little bit of, you know, nudging from the United States. Uh, and now t- the, the Taiwanese government is sort of trying to put on a full court press of sorts to to encourage her to retain ties with them. Taiwan only has 14 countries at this point that that recognize it diplomatically and it doesn't want to lose another one. That makes sense. So let's go to what's been on a lot of people's minds, and that, of course, is Ukraine. Uh, So, Derek, do you revise your prediction on war? Everyone could follow Derek week week by week, uh, (laughs) predicting whether or not there is going to be a war. Um, I I, wonder if there's actually betting on that. Are are there like sports type books on geopolitics? If not, American Prestige should start one. Offshore shady. Yeah, we should start uh, one. The American Prestige. branded sports book on geopolitical betting. So has there been, I'm actually going to look that up. Has there been uh, any, any updates? What's your prediction on more? Well, I mean, when you say week to week, I think we're in a week to week pattern at this point. It's not just me. Uh, I think this whole thing is now about, you know, can we prevent an invasion for another week? Can we buy like a little more time, uh, have like one more round of talks and maybe there'll be a breakthrough. Uh, and, and which, you know, if, if that's all you've got, at least it, you know, it can forestall, uh, a conflict for in the short term. And then who knows what could happen? Uh, there've been a couple of things that happened this week, uh, along those lines that I think are noteworthy for one thing, the U.S. government and NATO finally delivered a written response to Russia's list of security demands. Uh, this is something the Russians had been asking for uh, for quite some time. Uh, they have already sort of intimated that they're not happy with the answers, uh, which makes sense because the the main security demand was NATO shouldn't you know should uh, swear off any future expansion and and NATO can't Putin do should that. Be named president yeah, of right. NATO. Putin should be you know <laughs> viceroy of NATO or something. And uh, you know obviously they're not going to do that. We can debate whether they should or what NATO's purpose is. Uh, that's fine, but the organization is not going to going to agree to something like that. NATO has also sent a written reply, rejecting Moscow's demands. While we are uh, hoping for and working uh, for uh, a good solution, uh, de-escalation, uh, we are also prepared uh, for the worst. But I will say, I mean, the the lack of a written response, like it, it, despite multiple Russian requests, uh, had started to seem like an insult in itself. Like it was just very dismissive. Uh, like we're not going to bother to write down an answer to these these demands that you have. Uh, so the fact that that the U.S. has done it at all is sort of a, uh, I think, 
positive step, just acknowledging that, that this is what Russia wanted. And, and there is a possibility that there could be something in this response. And, and, you know, again, the signals, the early signals are, uh, you know, we're not happy with this, but, you know, we're still reviewing it. And, uh, there may be one or two things here that we can, we can talk about. In addition to that, uh, when they met last week, uh, Anthony Blinken, secretary of state, uh, and the foreign minister of Russia, Sergei Lavrov discussed, uh, this you know this forthcoming written response, and then they said they would meet again uh, afterwards. So here's where we get into the week week by week thing. Uh, they're gonna they're presumably gonna meet again now. So that means you you have at least as long as it takes them uh, to organize their next meeting and hold that before uh, an invasion becomes a, a, a possibility. Presumably, uh, the second thing that happened this week on Wednesday, there was a meeting of the uh, quote unquote Normandy format, which is the four countries: France, Germany, Russia, and Ukraine. That um, really haven't met for for quite some time now, but they're supposed to be uh, working on the implementation of the Minsk Agreement, which is a, a deal uh, to end the the civil war in eastern Ukraine. Uh, as I say, they haven't met. Uh, they hadn't met in quite some time until Wednesday. At Wednesday's meeting, they uh, issued a statement, or after the meeting, they issued a statement supporting the ceasefire that's supposed to be in place in eastern Ukraine uh, and agreeing to meet again next month in Berlin. So again, here you have, you know, we're, we're kind of reaching to the next milestone here. So you've got the Russians committed to uh, another round of talks next month that that could, you know, uh, could buy a little bit of time. In the meantime, you know, uh, again, I mean, I've said this before, you want to know whether I think there's going to be a war here. Uh, I've said this before. I, I, think I don't want to know. Were, the betters of America want to know. The betters of America want to know. You know, if Putin really wanted to invade Ukraine, even if he wanted to just do a a uh, small-scale invasion of eastern Ukraine and kind of carve off uh, the Donbass region, the, the rebellious Donbass region, a, as a Russian territory or, you know, annex it. I, I, I don't know that he wants to annex it, really. It's, uh, it's not as valuable as Crimea was. Um, but he, if he wanted to do that, he'd do it. The fact that he keeps moving troops around and sort of holding exercises in the vicinity of Ukraine and taking these steps to sort of make these signals tells me that he doesn't want to invade so much as he wants people to think he's going to invade so that he can, uh, so that they'll give him something, so that they'll concede something to him. Uh, I still, that's still where I am. Uh, the longer this goes on without him getting any concessions, uh, then, you know, the, the, the more we get to a point where some kind of conflict may be possible. Right, because Putin has to basically appease the sort of circle of oligarchs that he heads, right? Who 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 have had different perspectives on what the United uh, what the United States what the Russia should do with relation um, to external affairs for a while now. So he's kind of caught between a rock and a hard place because if the West doesn't give him anything, then what is he going to do? Right there, there there's this sort of tendency in uh, the U.S. national security establishment. I feel like to treat Putin as this world historical genius politics guy. <laughs> and I don't think he's that good at it, really. I mean, he, I think you're right. He's he's backed himself into a corner now with, with some of the people who support him where something has to give. He's got to get something that he can take back to them or he's got to uh, extract something by force. Um, one thing, I mean, one of the, the things that, that 
possibilities as this opens up, of course, is that uh, you can maybe pressure those oligarchs to to sort of lean on Putin to uh, to to go in a certain way. And there's been a lot of debate, as you know, about what what level of sanctions the West is prepared to impose on Russia in the event of an invasion. There's been talk about, you know, cutting Russian banks off from the SWIFT network. There's been talk about axing the uh, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which are things that would really hurt. They would hurt the uh, this sort of, you know, wealthy elite class of, uh, of Russians. But they would also have costs uh, for Europe in particular. The Nord Stream 2 pipeline is, a, uh, is supposed to be a major gas supply uh pipeline and and losing that supply of Russian gas would be very painful uh, for the Europeans. And so the German government has hesitated on this, and there's been kind of internal, uh, obvious internal dissension over how far we're uh, really prepared to go to punish Russia for for invading Ukraine. I noticed this week that a lot of the people seem to be coalescing again, uh, at least rhetorically, around these sort of very maximalist penalties around closing Nord Stream 2, around cutting Russia off uh, from SWIFT. Again, this is just rhetoric, but it suggests that maybe this internal debate that Western governments have been having is is kind of uh, being settled in favor of the harsher side of the, the, the scale. And that, you know, that, that could be an incentive for the Russians to kind of take a pause and and assess uh, how much pain they really want to risk. I don't know. So, as you said, there's still a lot of open questions, and uh, we'll keep on returning to the uh, this every week, I imagine, until until something happens. So, why don't we turn to our final topic, and that's the State Department's uh, arms deal with Egypt, despite significant human rights concerns with the Egyptian government. So, Derek, what happened there? Yeah, so um, I just wanted to highlight this because one of the uh, very first things that the State Department did uh, was about a month after the Biden administration came into office, they issued a grand statement to the press, uh, and I have it here, I'm looking at it on the State Department website, uh, whose title is Putting Human Rights at the Center of U.S. Foreign Policy. Uh, And so how are we putting human rights at the center of U.S. foreign policy this week? Uh, It's by selling about $2.5 billion in new weapons to a man who has never met a human right that he actually uh, agreed with, Abdel Fattah Sisi, the president, dictator, whatever you want to call him, of Egypt. We're doing this. The State Department has cleared this sale. It still has to go through Congress, which maybe uh, could be a hurdle in part because Congress uh, has a hold. It's, it's put a hold. It's had a hold for several months now on about $130 million in previously authorized Egyptian military aid over human rights concerns. And this is mainly... Uh, been pushed by the Democratic Party in Congress, which I don't think anybody's going to mistake for Amnesty International. Uh, but you know, even even for those guys, uh, the Egyptian government is is uh, such a, a, a human rights abuser that they're not willing to uh, to fork over this aid, and they've told the Biden administration to just scrap it, like stop, you know, just repurpose it. Um, so uh, he can't even meet the standard of, of congressional Democrats on human rights. And yet we are uh, selling him 
billion dollars in new weapons. One of the fascinating, really kind of, uh, you got to laugh to to stop from keep yourself from crying aspects of this is that the administration or the State Department, I guess, announced the, its approval of the sales precisely uh, time to coincide with the 11th anniversary of Egypt's Arab Spring Revolution in uh, 2011, which briefly brought a, an actual elected government to power in Egypt for the first time ever uh, before Sisi decided that, uh, you know, a couple of years later that he really wasn't pleased with that and overthrew that government and seized power for himself. Uh, so that's just a sort of extra twist to the knife, it seems to me. So what does this suggest, Derek, about the Biden administration's commitment to human rights are they going to fight for human <laughs> rights internationally? Are they going to fight for the liberal international order that Donald Trump stomped all over and we had four years of, you know, laments about? Or, or uh, it, was, it was tragic the way that he stopped talking about human rights, I guess. I, I mean, this is, it's all been rhetoric. It's always been rhetoric. And that's true of any administration pretty much in American history that's talked about human rights. It's been rhetorical. Uh, only we we use it when we need to as a, a sort of uh, club to beat our our adversaries with, but uh, we don't have the same standards for our allies for some reason. Yeah, so I mean, I just want to highlight this, and, and I think people, you know, uh, should be aware when uh, any administration, Democrat or Republican, speaks about human rights and, and what that actually suggests about U.S. foreign policy. Um, so I, I think that's it for the week. We have a, a great interview with Rebecca Gordon about autonomous weapons, uh, and Derek and I will see you next week. Oh, and also one more thing for our patrons is that we're releasing the final episode of our Vietnam series. Well, the second to final episode, the last one is more of a discussion about how Vietnam has been interpreted um, in American history. But this episode explores the history of uh, Vietnam actually after the war and how the country responded uh, and reacted to the 1970s and 1980s and uh, 1990s. So uh, check that out. And Derek, thanks so much. And I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Hello, American Prestige listeners. Once again, it is I, Derek. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Danny Bessner. Uh, and we are very pleased to welcome to the program Rebecca Gordon, uh, who teaches at the University of San Francisco. She is the author of Mainstreaming Torture and American Nuremberg, the U.S. Officials Who Should Stand Trial for Post-9-11 War Crimes. Uh, she's working on a new book on the history of torture in the United States. Uh, and she is a regular columnist for a website that I love called Tom Dispatch. Uh, Tom Definitely Dispatch. check it out. Com, one great. of the best places to go for a thoughtful uh pieces on U.S. foreign policy. Uh, she's got a, a recent piece uh, called Keep Your Laws Off My Planet, uh, laws here being an acronym for Lethal Autonomous Weapon Systems, which is something I think uh, we have not talked enough about on this program to date. So I'm very happy to, to get the chance to do that. Rebecca, thank you very much uh, for coming on the program. It's a pleasure. I'm delighted to be here. So uh, in your piece, you go into some fascinating 
Cold War history of autonomous weapon systems. And I think uh, Danny is is particularly eager to kind of <laughs> drill into that and uh, talk about that. But before we get there, can you sort of uh, give people a general overview without getting into some of the you know modern uh, concerns or considerations yet, because we'll, we'll do that later. Uh, but just give people sort of a general overview of what we're talking about when we talk about lethal autonomous weapon systems. So we're talking about systems of weapons that have the ability to kill and have the ability to make the decision to kill without human intervention at the moment when that decision is being made. So these are systems that can be programmed to seek out certain kinds of targets with certain signatures and then without any human decision making in the loop at that point can go ahead and kill people. And they are obviously designed for military use, but part of the danger is that they can be used for other things as well. And it's so interesting because for people who are interested in studying weapons systems and really politics generally, the, the, the question of decision is really a central one, is who is making this final decision to the point where, um, Rebecca, I'm sure it'll go into it, but where Barack Obama essentially differentiated himself from Bush by arguing that there were human beings making decisions at various points in the, in the decision-making process. And in um, so, fact, yeah, he, he, um, had a Tuesday meeting pretty much every Tuesday at which he personally made the decisions about who should be killed using um, remotely piloted drones, which are not autonomous, but they do definitely remove the person who is doing the killing from the danger zone. Exactly. Yes. And there was something, I mean, he his description and the and really the hagiographic description of this in the New York Times at the time was like, you know, this amazingly humane and thoughtful human being who was, you know, taking on the burden of making this decision. And yet the reality was that he was deciding to commit war crimes. He was murdering people. Yeah, and this is something that he talks about a lot in his memoir, and I think uh, a component of modern liberalism is basically feeling anguished over bad decisions, and that basically makes one a liberal in good standing, which is something we can talk about. But bef- but before yeah. we do that, um, I just want to ask a question, because it's really an important question of sovereignty, right? Where is sovereignty located in a society? So, um the dream of semi-autonomous or autonomous weapons goes back a long time. Um, in your article for Tom Dispatch, you really located um, your interest in it in the 1960s and 1970s. So maybe you could talk a bit about how you first became aware of this problem and why you think it's such an important one for critics of U.S. Uh, imperialism to, to center in their analyses. So... Um As I was mentioning to you before, I went to Reed College, and at Reed College, there was a man in the physics department who drove around in a battered VW and had apparently very little money, and about whom the chisme, the gossip was that he had actually participated in some of the computer design that went into the what was then called the automated battlefield, which was being deployed in Vietnam. And The word was that he had refused to receive any money from the Defense Department because he was so horrified by the purpose that his work had been put to. So when I found myself at Barnard College for a semester in the the, uh, spring of 1972, 
there was an ongoing occupation of the physics building across the street at Columbia. And so I spent quite a bit of time there. And our goal was to convince five physicists who were working for a special program of the Defense Department called Jason. And the Jasons were developing, they were basically doing basic science and they were given tremendous opportunities. They were given lab space and money to do basic science that could be valuable in the development of future weapon systems. And one of the things that they were working on that we were trying to convince them to stop working on was what was called in those days, the automated battlefield. And yeah. So where does the automated battlefield come from and how does it relate to the U.S. Um, fight, the U.S. war in Vietnam um, in the 1960s? We actually, just so you know, we just did a, an eight-part series on Vietnam, so oh, our wow. listeners so should be listening. very familiar. Um, so this is, and basically correct me if I'm wrong, the mid-60s, I think 66 mm -hmm. is when Jason really gets off the ground. So this is relatively early in, you know, post right post-escalation. So what is the dream, I think? Because I think it's important to understand the fantasia of these weapons before we, you know, uh, why people were attracted to them before we, you know, uh, take out, take them out from, uh, take them out from the bottom. Exactly. So the dream, as you say, and it's really interesting, some of the Jasons, including the people who were at Berkeley at Cal at the same time, they really thought that they were going to be able to put the brakes on the Defense Department. Some of them were, were liberals who thought that their presence would actually make things better. A but lot of them are liberals politically. And in fact, a lot of them consider themselves at the time social Democrats economically. So right. I think this is a tension we have to be aware Absolutely. of. Sorry to interrupt. Yes. No, no, that's fine. So so but what the dream was, was that you would ab be able to deploy technology and especially the newly exciting computer power to improve the efficiency of U.S. forces on the battlefield. And as you know, it was clear in 66, 67, 68, it was already clear that we were losing the war. And one of the big problems that the U.S. faced was the ability of North Vietnam to move personnel and materiel through what was called the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which came down along the um, the border with Laos and Cambodia between them and Vietnam. And it wasn't it wasn't like a four lane highway. It was a patchwork of dirt roads and streams and rivers, but and in fact, tunnels in which people used bicycles there. Um, so it was it was this patchwork. And so the I, the problem was that they that the U.S. was any unable to interdict this this trail because it was covered in this huge jungle canopy. And so the idea was, OK, we'll put all kinds of sensing devices on the trail that will alert us when there's activity on the trail. And then we'll be able to dispatch weapons, airplanes, bombers to stop that. The Fantasia was that this could all be automated, that it would be like this giant body with eyes and ears and then a brain, which was located in this almost temple. And in fact, um, some of the peoples who saw it really did think of it as, as an awesome temple to the beauty of technology. And they talked about it in these terms. And so the Fantasia was that you could basically press a button, start the program running on these IBM mainframes, and it would take care of the war for you 
without risking our soldiers and in a way that would be much more efficient than um, than what they were doing. It didn't. No, it never it never does. And I think this is really important because what you're saying really is crucial to, to liberal war making in, in two respects. One, there's this fetishization of technology, which goes back at least I mean, it goes back long, but I would say in modernity to the post World War One period where you have members of the Army Air Forces claiming that technology will make war clean. And that leads me into the second point, which is that there's this idea that war could be made humane through technology because it would save American soldiers. But I know, I, I haven't read these particular documents, but I would bet anything that they were also claiming it would be more humane for the enemies. That you you wouldn't have massive bombing campaigns, you'd have precision strikes, you'd have precise warfare uh, through technology. And this is a theme that reoccurs throughout American war making for the last 100 years. So I just wanted to highlight um, that because it's it's a really crucial problem that we come across back then and today in things like drone warfare and uh, automated weapon systems and also and, special forces. And in the two wars that we've conducted in Iraq, there was also the smart bomb, which has the same kinds of systems on it that was supposed to make it possible to target perfectly and avoid civilian casualties by so doing. And of course, we know that's not what actually happened. And it never does. So what happens with Jason and maybe take us through the 70s and the 80s and the 90s um, in, in any way that you see fit to see how these Fantasias changed or didn't change, um, particularly after the advent of the all-volunteer force, because I think this is a really crucial moment in American war making. No, I think you're exactly right. So what happened with with the automated battlefield, as we said, is that it didn't work. And in fact, the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong discovered very good low-tech methods of fooling it. They would put out buckets of urine to fool the chemical sensors that were supposed to detect human urine. They literally recorded the sounds of a truck ignition starting up and use that to fool the sensors into thinking there were trucks where there weren't. The other problem was that because of this forest canopy, they couldn't actually see what was going on down there. And so they ended up carpet bombing anyway. And, and you know, in spite of the idea that this was going to resolve that problem. And as you say, this fantasy continues and you hear people like General West Westmoreland and then later people again with this fantasy that if you can just make war technical, you can clean it up and you can make it so that only, for example, only combatants are killed. And as we know, every war in modernity, probably going back to at least the 18th century, has killed more civilians than it has combatants. And that continues to be true today. So this idea that that technology is going to distinguish between those groups is, as I say, a fantasy. We have the technology to do that now, and we still don't do it. We then begin to see, you know, in the 80s and 90s, my experience actually was in Central America. So I spent time in Nicaragua working in the war zones there, recording the effects of the U.S. Um, campaign against the, the Sandinista government that had overthrown uh, Somoza. And that's a long and different story. But um, one of the things that was clear was that they were actually using a very low-tech form of terrorism, of attacking specifically civilian 
targets, including schools and um, clinics and telephone lines and that sort of thing, and planting one of the most powerful autonomous weapons there is, which is landmines, right? So landmines, you might think, well, what's autonomous about that? What's autonomous is that it's set up to go off as soon as it's triggered by weight, right? So I used to go from one town to another, and every morning before you could take that that dirt road, the army had to go out with their mine sweeping trucks and dig up all of the mines that had planted been planted the night before. And United States, as you know, is one of the countries that refuses to sign a convention against landmines. And you would think that a country that was so committed to protecting civilians would not want to plant weapons that can indiscriminately kill civilians years after the official conflict is even over. Um, so then we come to the development of drones. And I think people get confused about drones because they're not autonomous. And oftentimes what the military does is when they hear that we are objecting to these autonomous weapons, they say, oh, but drones aren't autonomous. And in fact, that's not the issue. Drones have other problems. The problem with drones is, is targeting, obviously. And one of the forms of targeting that drones used that the CIA permitted and that was permitted and then rescinded and then permitted again was what they called signature strikes which are essentially strikes based on certain kinds of information, like there's X number of cars together, or we hear gunfire in the air, or um, other activities that could be identified in places like Afghanistan as being associated with possible resistance, possible insurgent activity. And very often those things actually turned out to be wedding parties, which also involve convoys of trucks and people firing into the air. And you may question whether that's a good idea. But um, so, so targeting, which in those days was a human choice, but based on signatures, not based on actual, you know, intelligence about who signature here just means patterns basically patterns, right yeah. yeah signature is a pattern that says when you see this pattern it's like the taliban has signed this piece of the desert and right. you should go out and attack so in drone strikes this idea these signatures were interpreted by human beings what would happen in autonomous systems is that human beings would program into the autonomous weapons when you see these things, then it's all right to kill. And so the, the potential is huge. The drones, though, are really, those are simply remote-controlled airplanes and with missiles that they can fire. And they're mostly controlled by people who are stuck in containers in the desert in Nevada. And one thing we know is that although those people who do that work don't end up being killed, they actually do end up suffering tremendous, what we now call moral injury and PTSD. After a while, it becomes, it becomes more than they can bear to realize that this isn't a video game. So one question I, I want to ask before we move to more modern times. Yeah. And to me, obviously, I'm not a, a specialist in this, but it does seem that there's a connection between the dream of autonomous weapons and the, what might be 
term the the demanding or the demand powering of war, where that you have fewer people fight wars and you replace them with autonomous systems. Do you see a connection there? Um, and if so, what might it be? Well, part of the connection is, of course, the all-volunteer army, right? After Vietnam, right. we went to the United States realizing finally that the draft was profoundly unpopular, um, chose to move to an all-volunteer army or what some people call the poverty draft, in which right. the army became and the, other, and the other military services became a route out of poverty for people who did not have other opportunities. And, you know, there's a whole other story about how people were taken advantage of. But one of the things that meant was that there were a lot fewer soldiers to deploy. And so, therefore, you see people like Donald Rumsfeld developing this dream of a lean, mean fighting machine that required fewer people and could offload the work and the danger of killing to, um, to machines. In the end, they didn't actually achieve that. And I, you know, I've had enough students who are veterans of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan to know that... Um, you know, what they went through and what it did to them. But, um, but yes, I think that this dream of reducing the risk to Americans, and this is, you know, I think that the military probably learned this lesson from observing what happened to the anti-war movement after the land war ended. After people, after millions or hundreds of thousands of Young, young men were being deployed to Vietnam, the movement actually, I won't say it collapsed, but it definitely shrank. When in the last few years of the war, when it was almost entirely an air war and people, you know, people were, American soldiers were not dying at the same rate, the opposition to the war also um, diminished. And I think that the military understands that while while people in this country want the jobs that are associated with the aerospace or military industry, they don't want to see people from the United States dying in wars. And so I think there's a real connection there with the idea that you could offload war making to machines. But here's the problem. If you could really just have machines fighting machines, as uh, Stuart Russell, who gave the BBC's Wreath Lectures this year, said, well, then you could you could conduct a war playing tiddlywinks, right? It wouldn't make any difference <laughs> because, but the reality is, and there's a wonderful philosopher named Elaine Scarry who wrote a book called The Body in Pain. And one of the things she talks about is that Wars end when human beings have suffered so much injury in one way or another that they can no longer stand it. And so wars will never be fought without causing inflicting human pain, because that's how you win a war, is you drive the enemy to the point where they're suffering more than they can stand. And so that's one of the things that makes this technological war making an illusion. It's and the other illusion is that you can create a situation in which only your side doesn't suffer, right? And from the point of view of, U of U.S. imperialism, we have managed in, you know, the second half of the 20th century 
to conduct wars up until 91, up until the first invasion of Iraq, and not counting Vietnam, but since then, to conduct our wars with minimal damage to U.S. personnel. And so the illusion is there that that can continue forever. But we know that that's not true. And, you know, we're seeing right now, we're seeing, you know, 8,500 soldiers are on high alert, whatever that means to um, confront the situation in, in Ukraine. We know that we can't escape forever the effects of war. And one way we see it, of course, is with all of the military material that's come back to this country and is being deployed by police in this country. And, you know, I mean, there were literally MRAPs like rolling down the streets across the bay from me in in East Oakland in the last few years. And it's because the Defense Department has all this leftover stuff and let's give it to the police. The other I don't way. see a problem with that. Let's just oh, arm our police. Yeah. Well, it's just, you know, it's we're efficient. The we're reusing Then we're on the same page. Arm, you know, arm the cops like they're yeah. in Fallujah. Yeah, it's yeah, a great absolutely. move. <laughs> right. And, you know, the other thing that they I shouldn't be in Fallujah in the first place. Also, everyone yeah, I understand. <laughs> then the other piece, of course, is small arms. And one of the things I think when you get fascinated by high tech weapons, you tend to forget that it's actually small arms that kill so many people, especially in the small wars that go on in all over Africa. And it's the small arms manufacturers who are the same people that are behind the NRA and are flooding our own country with guns, ordinary guns. And this, again, is a byproduct of the U of U.S. imperialism in its own way, because those weapons manufacturers want to keep selling the weapons. So uh, before I want to dig further into the sort of ethical and legal implications mm -hmm. in some sense uh, of these systems, but I wanted to follow up on, on something you mentioned in, in uh, your last response, which was the war industry. Um, mm -hmm. You talk in your piece about the program, the Igloo White program, uh, during you know during the Vietnam War, which as you say turned out to be uh, a failure, as the North Vietnamese came up with some very basic, uh, rudimentary ways of defeating it. Uh, but as you call it in the piece, it, you say it, it was an expensive failure, cost a billion dollars a year for five years, uh, which worked out for inflation comes to about forty billion dollars total today. Um, so it was a failure on the battlefield, but it wasn't a failure for the people who were getting this money, let's say. Uh, I think one of the pressures that um, is behind the push to build these more and more complex systems, in addition to what Danny was talking about, the sort of uh, demanification of conflict and getting people off the battlefield and replacing them with uh, robots, is the fact that this is a very lucrative business. This makes a lot of money for a lot of people. Even the projects that fail make a lot yeah. of money for a lot of people. I wonder if you could talk a little more about that aspect of it. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, if you're old enough to remember uh, the fall of the Soviet Union, I don't know about you, but I'm still waiting for my peace dividend, right? <laughs> but the, I, I don't know. I, uh, we think NATO is, should expand <laughs> as east as possible to China, to the borders of China. That's the American prestige take. <laughs> yeah, there you go. 
Um, so I think that I think that you're absolutely right, of course, that there are commercial interests that are deeply involved in this. And you're also right. It doesn't matter if they succeed or fail. The money will still be there. And part of that is because human beings who are dazzled in, you know, in our military leadership are making purchasing and planning decisions based on being dazzled, frankly, and having this fantasy. But the reality is that they measure their success in terms of the number of dollars that they can get appropriated in Congress to spend money on on weapons. And, you know, being on the on the West Coast, I'm really aware of how many people's livelihoods are dependent on what's, you know, euphemistically called the the aerospace industry, you know, certainly up in the Pacific Northwest, in Boeing, in Seattle, and down in Southern California as well. And so not only are there um, commercial interests, but there are interests of workers who really stand to lose relatively high paying jobs. And so, you know, the the it's very hard for the people who represent those parts of the country to do the right thing and pivot and use develop high tech in another direction, say, oh, I don't know, maybe to mitigate climate change or something like that. But the money I mean, but the thing about the thing about weapons is they are consumed in the process of right. war. So you always need more. Right. They are. Talk about your built in obsolescence. Right. And so from the point of view of someone whose goal is to amass more and more capital, there is no better deal than making weapons because you're always going to need more and once, of course, you have the toys, you want to play with the toys. And, you know, I don't wish to reduce all of this to human psychology, but the truth is that there is a human element in all of these decisions. And it's not always rational. The way that, you know, we are not perfect economic actors, rational actors. And that even includes the weapons manufacturers and the people who make these decisions in the military. And, and this raises very large questions about whether things like the production of weapons should be made by private corporations. Um, it's a peculiar American thing. Well, maybe not peculiar, no. but it's an American thing that we've privatized a lot of functions that in a more just world or in a more quote unquote rational world uh, wouldn't be privatized. And so you have these industries that are related to the fundamental you know, purposes of a state defense or, or what have you being outsourced to private actors. And that creates all sorts of strange incentives and perverse incentives that lead to you know, things like the, F, the famous F-35 debacle. Right. And so, I mean, these really, uh, these questions, I think, really get at the heart of things like the structure of the American states, who makes decisions, where they make decisions, and, and who should be um, producing things that theoretically should be subject to some form of democratic accountability, but are not. Yes, I couldn't agree with you more. And of course, the capacity to hold people accountable is shrinking even as we speak, as we see, you know, the the growth of autocracy and the attacks on voting rights and other aspects of of um, political engagement. But you also had a question about you were going to ask about morality and Derek and um, 
Well, I think, yeah, we can sort of move on to that ground yeah. a little bit and talk about um, the morality and, and then, you know, what that, what that means in terms of legality and what the international community can do. But I, I, I thought, I wonder maybe if we could, uh, if you could give people a, a sort of overview of where the, these systems stand today. You mentioned earlier in, in the interview that, you know, if you talk to the somebody at the Pentagon about autonomous weapons and you mentioned drones, they sort of play <laughs> little kind of uh, uh, semantic games and say, well, those aren't autonomous. There's somebody involved, which is, it, it seems, it strikes me as a little disingenuous because it, if we do get to the point of fully autonomous weapon systems, they will be built on these kinds of platforms that we see today. Uh, so I wonder if it, it would make sense to, to sort of talk about where the drone where drones are now, I mean, we, we're at a point where uh, non-state actors even are, are buying like off-the-shelf quadcopters and arming them uh, to great effect. Even at the national level, uh, the Turkish government, for example, has become well known for producing very affordable drones that, that can be, you know, sort of mass produced and, and deployed in uh, swarms, unlike the, the very expensive drones, let's say, that the United States kind of specializes in. Uh, the Israeli military has specialized quite a bit in um, all for, all types of kind of robotic battlefield weapons. They've got uh, robotic machine gun units surrounding Gaza. They uh, apparently, I, I guess, uh, allegedly, we'll put allegedly in quotes, but assassinated uh, Mohsen Fakhrizadeh in, in Iran, the leading nuclear scientist with a, a robot, a, a basically a you know, robot truck-mounted or, yeah, truck-mounted machine gun, uh, to give people sort of an, an overview of where we're at now. And we can, you know, then we'll move into the questions about artificial intelligence, which uh, is where, you know, we're, we're sort of heading. So when we say drones in an American, in a U.S. context, I think most people picture one of those famous photographs from the Pentagon of the great big plane with the hump, but no windows because there's no personal pilot. Well, the kinds of drones that you're talking about now are much smaller. What we're talking about are tiny, could be tiny weapons, weapons the size of your cell phone and manufactured very cheaply in the millions and could be programmed. And this technology all exists today to identify targets based on certain, as we said before, signatures or certain um, certain significant uh, data, right? So we're talking about small drones, easily available drones, drones that could be purchased by ordinary you know, individuals even. And as you say, the Turks have apparently already deployed or sold drones to be deployed in Libya in 2020 that were completely autonomous, according to the United that Nations. Was, yeah, that was one of the reports was they were working autonomously and they've sold them elsewhere to Ukraine, for example, and, and, and elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, so Azerbaijan, this, maybe. So this is, this is scary. And these countries, Libya, Azerbaijan, Ukraine, to a lesser extent, but they're not necessarily parts of the conventions that exist on these weapons. Now, there are legal conventions that, you know, and um, one of the things that I remain convinced about is that it is really important to believe and to act as if international law were real law. 
and enforceable law. And I think it's really going to be one of the few. (laughs) If we manage to survive as a species and aren't knocked back 2,000 years or more, um, that international law is going to be crucial to that. And one of the, so, you know, I'm not going to give a whole lecture on international humanitarian law, but there are laws and customs of war that exist to control and confine and define what is acceptable, what is legal, and what is not legal in war. And these have been updated substantially since World War II and since the Nuremberg trials. But one of the questions is whether or not these autonomous weapon systems, by definition, violate international humanitarian law. The U.S. government, their position has been Well, we can't really say one way or another because we think it would be unhelpful to define, even to define these weapons. So in the conversations that go on about um, there's a convention, it has a very long name, the Convention on Prohibitions or Restrictions on the Use of Certain Conventional Weapons, which may be deemed to be excessively injurious or to have indiscriminate effects. This is usually shortened to the Convention on Certain Weapons. And um, among these weapons are considered to be things like biological weapons, chemical weapons. And um, the question is, what else is contained under this convention? And the U.S. um, has actually signed the convention. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so yeah, I just actually, this is a perfect place to pick up on because I'm just going to, let me give the cynical response. International law has, it doesn't matter. Uh, the U S will never follow it. Great powers will never follow it. They do whatever they want and they sign whatever, uh, whatever they want. And that's basically it. So why could international humanitarian law, which has not been effective in my opinion for decades, uh, since and I'm sure you've read Sam Moyne's book on this, uh, humane. And I think he makes a pretty persuasive case that it's just kind of been ignored. Um, and it's not particularly causal. Why would this be an important avenue for people to pursue? Or is it time to really think about new ways to approach this and that using the tools of liberalism against liberalism isn't really going to work, which is effectively the project of international law? I'm going to argue that, um, in fact, it does that international law remains the only instrument, really, that we have to affect the behaviors of nations as sovereign entities, that we don't have anything else. The alternative is what? Is to provide is to create military um, formations that are going to challenge the United States. That's not going to happen. So what I think is that that it's going to take within the nations the power of organized people to hold their governments to the uh, requirements of the laws that they have signed on to. And, you know, I know this is a problem. For example, the USS has never signed on to the International Criminal Court. And in fact, under George W. Bush, sent a letter saying we are not going to sign. We're not going to ratify. We're never going to be part of that. And I know that this is a problem. But I think that the the only alternative that I can see is organized collective response to governments to put that pressure on on, you know, governments like the U.S. Because what's the the alternative is. So that's my 
Say it. That's, my que- that's my question, you know, because I've been thinking a lot about this recently in light of mass protest movements, which had, haven't actually resulted in much policy change. And so I think it's, I guess, I, I think in, in 2022, we need to really rethink the location of power in society and how to actually approach these problems, because I think five plus decades of these sorts of mass movements and, and, and what have you just haven't worked, flat out haven't worked. And uh, that's, that's all I was bringing up here. I don't want to derail the conversation. So Derek, maybe yeah. you could bring it back. But I just wanted to like put a pin in that as something we've been discussing on this podcast for a while. No, and I think you've got a point. And, you know, oddly enough, and I'm I'm not like a workerist sort of person, but I do believe, as they used to say in South Africa, but I do think that one of the places where we are beginning to see a small resurgence in collective power is in the you know, decimated realm of organized labor. And I'm actually a member organized. Well, you know, we call it striketober. I, I'm I'm part of the exploited my uh, majority that teach in universities. I'm part time contingent faculty and I actually work as a member organizer for my union. And here in California, we have seen the part-timers at the University of California in the last month win a 30% pay increase, six weeks of paid parental leave, and a whole bunch of other benefits just on the basis of threatening to strike for two days. So I, I realize that this is, you know, it's a long shot and there's a lot of rebuilding to and democratization to be done. But I've also spent a bunch of time working with Unite Here, which is the hospitality industries union on electoral campaigns in Nevada, and which I had to learn to pronounce properly properly. Um, and I'm really impressed with their capacity to bring along ordinary rank and file people and train them to be leaders in genuine ways. And it's small. It's not, you know, it's not exactly the most crucial industry in the country in terms of affecting, say, U.S. military policy. But I think we need realms for collective action. It's not going to come out of the nonprofit sector. No, it is not. <laughs> Definitely not. One thing we can all agree on: the NGO world is not is not the key yeah. to revolution. It's not, what? No. no. <laughs> Sorry, so, Derek. Sorry to burst come your bubble. On. <laughs> so you know, it's but it's got to come out of collective action somewhere. I mean, that's the only the only hope that I see, and I see within that context international law as an instrument for collective action. That's all I'm saying. Okay, so um, I realize that uh, those of you who have real jobs, unlike myself, <laughs> we have to wrap up for for that uh, that reason. So let's uh, just go through a couple of uh, remaining questions. Um, I, I want to um, one of the things you do very well in the piece, which I appreciated, is is that you kind of. Um, burst the myth, I think, that exists around uh, AI and the, you know, the sort of autonomous aspect of these weapons, which um, you talk about the Terminator movies. I think a lot of people get their ideas about this from the Terminator movies. So they think AI, they think autonomous weapons, they think some 
uh, all-seeing, all-knowing kind of massive computer network like Skynet uh, in the Terminator films. But as you say in the piece, all you need for an autonomous weapon system are things that really we can do now. I mean, this is not a science fiction future concept. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and what would be required to, to, to take us from uh, these sort of minimally manned systems to fully uh, autonomous weapons? So all you need are four things. You need a mobile system, a mobile platform of some kind. And as you were saying before, you can buy a quadcopter on the internet today, right? You need the ability to detect light and sound and perhaps other, um, perhaps other forms of data and, you know, sensory input, basically. You need the ability to make tactical decisions, to make a decision whether to engage or not, right? So these are the kinds of decisions, decision-making that already exist. Every time I ask, and I'm not going to say it, every time I ask the woman whose name I'm not going to say because she will speak to me, I don't have an Alexa, this is Siri, um, <laughs> to tell me something, right? She There's already decision-making built into that. Sometimes it's not very good. And she shows me things that I don't find particularly useful, but it's already there. Computers can play Go. Computers can play chess and have for decades, right? So all of that is um, is already there. And then the fourth thing is just the ability to kill. So what we're talking about is something that could be the size of a deck of cards that contains three grams worth of explosives that can be used to attack and kill a specific individual. And then as Stuart Russell said in his lecture um, on the BBC, you could put a whole, you could put a million of those things into a container, one shipping container, and you could start them up and they could go out and kill a million people just based on the autonomous power. And all of that technology already exists. However, it doesn't always work as anyone who's <laughs> ever tried to get their computer to recognize their fingerprint can tell you. And so this is part of the problem. And it's also part of the moral responsibility, right? There are moral and legal responsibilities for deploying systems that don't both that do do what you want them to do and that don't do what you want them to do. There's negligence involved. And there, you know, there are suits going on right now against Tesla because of people who had their cars on autopilot and the car caused crashes and people ended up dying. And this is an example of, you know, maybe not ready for prime time, but also of the kind of hubris that believes human beings are capable of creating fail-safe programs. And anybody who grew up reading um, On the Beach and Failsafe, a novel of uh, nuclear dystopia, knows that there's no such thing, right? So why don't we uh, close on this question then? Uh, again, to go back to the, the piece you talk about, well, I think people, when they articulate their concerns about these weapons, uh, I think they get it slightly wrong, and it's a it's a distinction that you make very well in the piece. Uh, there's there's this idea that you re you're removing the human being from the uh, sort of moral responsibility for what happens. I don't think that 
That's it. The, the human being who programs these machines or who uh, you know manufactures these machines, uh, human beings are still going to be ultimately responsible for what they do. Um, it's not that you're you're sort of taking them out of the loop, uh, but there are serious serious concerns about what fully autonomous weapons will mean for warfare in terms of you know spillover in terms of the effect that it will have on uh, civilian populations and so I, I i thought maybe we could uh, you know in the next couple of minutes i know you have to go so i don't want to keep you any longer than that but what are your overriding concerns about these weapon systems my fear about these weapon systems is that they are so easy to make and that they ultimately will be so cheap to make that they will escape from um, from our control. Now, um, some people are concerned about their falling into the hands of non-state actors, and that's a problem. And there are a lot of non-state actors running around who have managed to make tr literally trillions of dollars from cybercrime and especially from ransomware and things like that. And so, you know, and we have state actors who've managed to reach into Iran and dis and destroy the centrifuges in their uh, nuclear facilities. But there's also the fear of what state actors will do with this stuff. And the reality that we could see a situation in which people choose to loose these weapons, not just on combatants, but on civilian populations. And if you think that can't happen, look at every war that has happened in the last 150 years. And even when human beings were not, when civilians were not the direct targets, they're the ones who suffer. And, you know, one of the, one of the, dreams of this is that it can kill people and leave the infrastructure standing, right? Because they're so small, they don't have to bomb and destroy infrastructure. And this, of course, threw me back into the neutron bomb. <laughs> sure, the <laughs> ultimate nuclear weapon. We keep the stuff, right? we kill the people, yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> and this is another, you notice they never developed it. Well, this is another fantasy, right? You can't actually do that. And But my fear is that when we deploy these things, it's not it's not a qualitatively different weapon in that sense. There still is human responsibility, but the quantity and the capacity is enough to mean that it falls, in my mind, into the same category as biological and chemical and nuclear weapons in the sense that you cannot control the effects. They aren't going to do what you think they're going to do, and there's no way to make them discriminate. And the illusion that you can through artificial intelligence is just that. It's an illusion. On that note, I think that's the, a suitably ominous note. We try to end on these <laughs> very ominous kind of tones. It's, it's our signature for this podcast. So I think that's a good place to end. Uh, again, I know you have to run, so we will, we'll, we'll wrap up here. Rebecca Gordon of the University of San Francisco. Uh, again, the piece is at Tom Dispatch. It's Keep Your Laws Off My Planet. We'll have a link in the show description as well as to your books. Uh, thank you very much uh, for coming on the program, and uh, we'd love to have you back again. Great. Thank you, Derek. It was fun. Take care. <laughs>